0: This is the Bill Kelly Show
1: podcast. Well, this is a story that we've been talking about for many, many years now, ever since we first heard the phrase Code Zero here in Hamilton when it comes to emergency services. And uh, it may sound something of, a, of an abstract discussion point for many of us, because a lot of us don't ever call ambulances. Thank God, knock on wood, you won't have to do that. But when you do, Code Zero, of course, means that there are zero ambulances, one or zero ambulances available to to answer that 911 call. And uh, CBC News uh, has reported uh, about the death of one individual. I'm putting a face to this whole story and this whole tragic circumstance. Her name was Catherine Terry. Uh, she died of a heart attack while in her central Hamilton apartment while waiting for a 911 response to her 911 call. It didn't come in time. Mario Pastoraro, the president of Opsu Local 256, joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this situation and many more like it, too. Mario, good morning. How are you today?
2: Good morning, Bill. How are
1: you? Good. Sad story uh, that, that we've talked about, but you told us the last time you were on the program a couple of weeks ago, uh, and that was to do with a story that uh, that indicated that even now, as we draw toward the end of August, uh, so we're not even three-quarters of the way, maybe three-quarters of the way through the year, we've already had more code zeros than we had all of last year, and you said there was going to be a tragedy. Well, we've had one, and probably a, very, a, a number of near misses. <laughs> this, this is... A sad personification, really, of something you've been warning us about for years now.
2: We've been pounding this storyline for a number of years, Bill, and the bottom line is we've been playing Russian roulette with the lives and health care of our residents. Now, without knowing all of the details or the facts pertaining to this most recent event, um, and I also in the fact there's possibly litigation that will be ongoing, I'll just refrain from getting into the specific details um, and talk about generalities. Sure. And, uh, and I think what we've spoken about in the past is it's, it's critically important for our, uh, our residents to understand what the human impact is when there's no ambulances available. And we spoke about that the last time I was on your show, this just personificates what we've been talking about. Um, obviously our service was not able to provide the best care, uh, at the best time delivered by the best people for this patient. Uh, and that's that's a sad commentary, but it's probably underreported. The frequency of these events are probably underreported, and I'm not surprised.
1: Let's, let's talk about the problems and the process and, and possible solutions on this. And and, and this is, this is such an important topic, and I know that city staff are aware of this. I mean, Mary, I still recall the first few times you came on to talk about this when we first heard of Code Zeroes. Uh, you actually had to t- try to convince the people at the city staff at City Hall and others that, that hey, this was a real problem. Uh, they're on side with us right now, but the numbers still aren't getting any better. What's going on?
2: Well, in 2006, 2007, when we had the first reported Code Zero event, the senior management at the time called it an aberration. Uh, we knew better. Uh, we lobbied City Council. We campaigned right in front of City Hall, and that resulted in City Council hiring a consultant that came in and obviously... Uh, recommended the staffing up, significant staffing up of personnel in order to deal uh, to some degree with the call volume that existed at the time. What was also reported is that call volume would continue to increase. And I can tell you we have not been able to mitigate that increase in call volume. Just last year alone, uh, the number of calls increased between 7% from the year previous. It was only predicted to increase by 4%. Um, We have an aging demographic that relies on our services. This patient that we referenced today is one of those aging demographics, and we weren't able to provide the time to care this patient deserved.
1: Well, let's talk about that demographic because that's an important part of this right now. First of all, there are some challenges that you meet, uh, and I understand that a lot of these challenges are, are very consistent with other communities as well but there's a geography uh, uh, element to what's going on here too. The city of Hamilton is a pretty big city geographically. If you want to go from, you know, from one end of it all the way across to the other to Flamborough and uh, and you know, it's 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 a, a a dynamic right now that presents with it some some unique challenges. Obviously, it's a matter of getting there and response times. And and I know that that's been a concern of yours since day one as well.
2: I mean, uh, our geography is our geography. We, you know, we we brag about our geography and, and, and the many great attributes our city has. So these are not surprises. We should be proud of them. What we're not proud of is the fact that our demographic and aging demographic, which is slated to increase significantly over the next coming years, is not being met by an additional uh, staffing up of ambulance resources. So we can't meet the needs of the patients. Um, and now this is this this problem has been. Um, has been straddled on our municipality, partially by the provincial government. We've spoken about that before. Has mm-hmm. been cutbacks within healthcare. Has been cutbacks within the hospital sector, long-term care beds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But council can't control those aspects of the problem. What it can control is providing the dollars to put more paramedics on the road in light of the increasing requests for our services. That's an undisputable fact. That has not been done. To be should be done now. You know, when Archie first came on three years ago, he recognized the need to have additional ambulances on the road. We didn't get there to the degree that we should have, and we missed the boat this year because a staffing enhancement request was not put forth. We're hoping that changes for 2018, and stories like this only reinforce the fact that we need more. I want somebody to convince me that we can do more with less in light of our aging demographic where these patients are getting sicker and require longer care. I don't know how we can deal with these with these types of circumstances unless we hit, you know, we hit the, the, the root cause of the problem. We have an increase in call volume. We need more frontline paramedics. You can spin it any way you want, but it comes down to that critical factor. And council has to prioritize that fact. As it deliberates, its budget for 2018 bill.
1: And that's got to be part of the discussion, though, because, as you mentioned, there's a provincial element to this and a municipal element to this, and the province seems to have missed the mark on this, Mario. I mean, you know, they, they have told us in the past, we're going to help you, and and what they've done, of course, is they allocated funding to some of the hospitals uh, for extra staff in the ER, and and... That was supposed to be part of the solution, maybe even a big part of the solution. I don't know in their minds. But that's not addressing the situation. I mean, your staff are still there because there isn't enough room in the hospitals. It's, you know, you can have all the nurses there you want, but if there's no beds for these people to go into, you're still going to have to wait until you can offload them. And it's, it's not as simple as the province seems to think it is.
2: Well, their solution was really you know, um, providing chump change to deal with a serious problem. And on the one hand, they're providing what they call uh, RN offload nurses to deal with the inflow of patients that we bring in while they're cutting back in other areas of the hospitals where there's insufficient beds. So patients are being tied up in the hospital emergency wards regardless. So smoke and mirrors, promises and band-aids, the net effect is that our residents are suffering. They're not being provided the best health care they deserve. that that that, that's partially a provincial um, uh, problem it's their fault but bringing it down you know right down to the grassroots at the municipal level our politicians have to recognize there is certain things they can control and the thing they can control is they have to provide the required dollars to put more paramedics on the front lines it's that simple it's just not being done I'm not sure how many more of these tragic stories we have to hear about in order for them to get the point. And it has to be reinforced by our senior management. And, 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 and we continue to collaborate. I mean, I, I don't want to give you the impression that we're not actively contributing to solutions. We are. We're looking at programs to reduce the number of calls coming in. Um, we have uh, have had some success. But Bill, when, when the call volume increased to the tune of 7% over last year alone, we just can't meet that demand. And something's going to fall off the rails as it has. We're not providing the best care at the best time. That's a fact, though.
1: There's, there are a couple of other th- facts that, that are, I, I think are factors in this whole discussion as well, Mario. And, and they're the result of, of some of the problems you've just outlined here. Uh, when I've talked to some of your staff, some of the frontline folks that are, are staffing uh, the, the units that are on the road these days, uh, they tell us because of offload times, because of volume of calls... Uh, they often don't get lunch breaks or or, or any kind of break at all through the course of the day. Now, that may sound insignificant to somebody, but when you're dealing with a high-intensity job such as that, that can be problematic. They're working extra hours, uh, and as a result, and you and I have talked about this in the past, uh, you've got a number of them that are having mental health issues right now, post-traumatic stress uh, in some cases, Uh, and, and that's Get, causing you to be short-staffed. I mean, obviously there's not enough units on the road, and then you've got a staffing problem on top of that. Uh, it's it's really kind of snowballing if, if nothing is going to be done about this. It,
2: uh, you're right on point with all of those uh, points that you've just cited. Our staff typically gets pounded. Uh, Hamilton is known as a high-call volume city. Um, in spite of that, we've never made this problem uh, about the paramedics themselves. Uh, people enter the paramedic profession in order to help people. And our our paramedics respond um, unequivocally, uh, regardless of whether they've eaten, regardless if they're on forced overtime. It does have an impact, absolutely. And it manifests itself in mental health care issues, uh, absenteeism. These are the cascading effects of a service that is under stress and and to your credit
1: you're absolutely right mario like i say these were offline discussions i had with some of the the folks in your in your department uh and you're right you don't talk about it and you probably don't talk about it enough but for the people around that horseshoe at city council chambers that are having to make decisions about budgets they need to know about this sort of stuff because it's 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 stuff that has an impact on the delivery of service in this area
2: it sure does And um, as I said, you know, we don't just want to make it about the impact on paramedics. Uh, We'd like to try to focus the discussion on the impacts of our residents. You can imagine the family of this resident who was underserved with respect to not getting the best care at the best time. uh, The impact that has. Uh, It pales in comparison to a paramedic not having E. It pales in comparison to a paramedic having to work an hour and a half uh, of forced overtime beyond the end of their shift. It's a factor but it's not the primary factor that council should be considering. This is an issue about delivering uh, a modern ambulance service in 2017-2018 and providing the dollars for us to do that. Our paramedics go all out. Our service goes all out. There's only so much we can do in light of these challenges, Bill, and council really has to come to the realization that there has to be a prioritization of of its spending dollars and it has to be directed towards an underfunded uh, service, and that's the ambulance service. And 2018 has been the election year. You know, we hear it's you know the dollars are going to be tight. This has to be patient focused. It's not about getting reelected. This is about delivering the best care we possibly can to our residents.
1: Well, because the discussion always is, well, we've got to keep taxes down. We've got to stop spending. We've got to reduce this and reduce this and yada yada yada. And I get that. I'm a taxpayer too. I pay a lot of property taxes, but I want service. I want to know that if there's a, a, a tragic situation. In, in our neighborhood or even, God forbid, in our household, that if I call 911, I'm going to get a response in, 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 in timely fashion. And that's not necessarily a guarantee in this community right now. This is, this is all about dollars here, and, and, and council's going to have to come to grips with that and and to your credit and to city staff's credit anyway i know they've done the math on this i mean it's it's a simple solution here they they're talking around this and saying well we need to do more in er we need to book no they need to put more units on the road that's just really what it comes down to and that's got to be the focus of the debate
2: it it really has to be and it's it's a matter of you know whether they prioritize the dollars and there's always so many dollars available but is the focus on providing dollars to Um, the health and well-being and the lives of its residents or is the focus elsewhere you know we haven't been prioritized sufficiently to to deliver the best care that we can it's really as simple as that is dollars and cents there's always competing challenges i don't want to undermine the other competing challenges and requests for monies but you know if you're not taking care of your residents and their health care then where is that money going And, and i think that has to be how the discussion is framed Yes, we're going to have to spend more money. You know, Increasing taxes may be a reality. But that's the cost of having a contemporary, modern ambulance service. And it's been underserved, and it has to change. Otherwise, we're going to continue to pound the same storyline uh, for another 20 years, Bill. It's been going on
1: for 11? At least, yeah. At least. At least, as long as I've been back here. Anyway, you and I have been talking about this. You and I talked about right. this when I was still on City Council, so it's got, I, it predates that. Really, when you go Absolutely. on to go back that far, is to when this uh, actually started to become an issue. Listen, yes, if sir. if in their wisdom, City Council picks up the phone as soon as you and I are finished here today and says, "Mario, we see the light, we understand it finally." How many units do you need? Do you have an answer for them?
2: Well, we yeah, we've spoken about that in the past, and we we were content with an incremental investment in the service on an annual basis in order to soften the blow. Because we missed the boat in 2017, now we have to play catch-up while our call volume increases. I would say right now, to, to make a measurable dent, we probably need five, at least five additional frontline ambulances, at least.
1: And staff, or do you have enough staff? With
2: the staff, no. With the staff. So let's talk about the dollars. Let's be blunt
1: about it. Sure. A
2: fully staffed 24-hour ambulance, all in, is about a million bucks.
1: Times five. Half of,
2: it is paid, half of it is paid by the provincial government as an approved yep, cost. Yeah. So we're getting $5 million for 2.5. That's the value
1: equation. Well, those are the numbers, and it's out there in front of City Council. And uh, as you say, uh, they're going to start their budget deliberations, we're told, for 2018 in just a couple of weeks. Try to get it out of the way before the election uh, cycle starts coming up. So you know we're going to be talking about this again. Mario, thanks as always for uh, making some time for us today and bringing us up to speed on this. It's uh, greatly appreciated.
2: My pleasure, Bill. Have a great day.
1: You too. Mario Posterero, of course, president of OPSU Local 256. Uh, and something's got to be done about this. I mean, we, we, we don't want to keep talking about stories like this. These are, these are desperate times when somebody has to call 911, and the service just has to get better. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
2: on AM 900
1: CHML. Well, round two of the NAFTA renegotiations uh, are slated for this Friday. Uh, they're going to be in Mexico City. Uh, That, of course, uh, with this cloud hanging over their heads right now of uh, Donald Trump suggesting, uh, even a couple of times over the last three or four days, that he's probably going to kill the deal. Uh, I don't know if he means the renegotiated deal or just plain rip the one up that's uh, in existence right now. But it does uh, give Canada and Mexico, the other two trading partners in NAFTA, pause for concern. So what's going to happen? Let's ask Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Good morning, Marvin. How are you today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Uh, I, I, don't, I I was going to ask you, is, is there a plan B for Canada and Mexico? It might be a plan C or D. Yeah, we're kind of moving down the list here, aren't we?
0: <laughs> well, so a, a couple of things here. First, I think you have to um, take Donald Trump with a gigantic grain of salt. Uh, last week, uh, I was vacationing in California at the same time that Donald Trump decided to visit nearby Arizona. He spoke for 76 minutes, uh, mostly like a campaign rally, uh, touched all the high points, or or maybe like a Katy Perry concert. You heard all the favorites from the past. (laughs) Uh, Within that 76 minutes, for exactly two minutes of the 76, he spoke about NAFTA, and he said, Folks, you know, uh, Canada and Mexico, they're being tough on all this. uh, uh, Look, maybe I should just rip it up. What do you say, folks? Should I just rip it up, rip it up? And, of course, they all start chanting, Rip it up, rip it up. Uh, you know he's playing like a rock concert, and that's not how you set policy. I don't actually take it terribly seriously. Now, it is true that the president of the United States has the power to end trade agreements. Does not have the power to ratify trade agreements. Does have the power to end trade agreements. But the two times it's been used in the past, it's been justified because of other political actions. In other words, we had a trade agreement with the com- country. It's now turned hostile towards us, so I'm ending the agreement. Congress said, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. I think if he walked into Congress and said, I want to rip up NAFTA as it stands today, and Congress said, why? And he said, well, you know, they're just tough people. I don't like the deal. They tell him to take a leap. And I think that's the thing we have to remember here. He's a negotiator that loves negotiating in public. He loves to get you off his game, or get you off your game, excuse me, by being this loud type, uh, type of person. And the smartest thing Canada and Mexico can do is just ignore it, keep our head down, keep our eyes focused on what we need to do. And to their credit, both Canada and Mexico have been doing
1: exactly that. But notwithstanding, because we keep hearing that, Marvin, that oh, there's a lot, you know, the Lighthouse is a lot smarter, and he's, he's, a, he's a, a veteran trade negotiator. He knows this stuff. But they get their marching orders from the White House.
0: Well, they do. And so let's talk about round one, which ended uh, just about 10 days ago now. Um, Yes, America put, I think it was, 36 different proposals on the table. Uh, Here's here's some language you would like to see here. Here's some language you want to see here. Here's some language you want to see here. Canada and Mexico each put on about 10 proposals. So, you know, quite different in terms of the number of proposals. Uh, What did they do? Well, in that first round, they said, thank you for your proposals. We'll go away and study them, and we'll come back. And so this round two is a chance to respond and say, yes, we can agree to this language, or no, we want some changes here. And that's really what negotiations are. Now, uh, the United States has suggested, this is now the United States, not Canada or Mexico, that they want this wrapped up by February of 2018. That means uh, an awful lot of these uh, proposals are either going to have to be accepted on face value or there's going to have to be serious negotiations. Uh, some of them are totally unacceptable to Canada. I can give you a quick one here is that there's a dispute rec- a resolution agreement that we have today under NAFTA which says we need a tripartite panel, in other a judge from Canada, a judge from Mexico, a judge from the United States and they will adjudicate it. The Americans counter proposal in this round is we want American judges to resolve all disputes. Well no, that's not going to work and w- and I guarantee you Bill at some point in the next month or two there's going to be a negotiation somewhere and Canada will likely storm out. We'll just say well this is unacceptable and if you're not talking we're going to leave cuz that's some of the theater that goes around these kinds of negotiations. You and I though I don't think we should worry about it. We've got good people at the table and and yes let the Americans uh put some things on the table. Some of them we we're not surprised at. One of the big ones that the Americans want are some significant changes to intellectual property rights. That's things like copyrights and trademarks. They have whole corporations that rely on copyrights and trademarks, and these copyrights were going to expire 50 years after the death of an author. Well, think what the Disney Corporation would be worth if all of a sudden all that copywritten material that Walt Disney had becomes public domain. Walt Disney died in 1968. Next year is the 50th anniversary of his death. If that stuff all became public domain, Disney would cease to exist as a company. That's one of the reasons why they're pushing for these changes. And I think we're probably going to be amenable to some of those things that they're talking about. But there are other things where we'll draw a line in the sand and say, look, there's no no way in the heck that we're going to agree to this. You're going to have to compromise. And, and I think the United States understands that. I think Lighthouser understands that. Now, can he sell it to Donald Trump? Well, you know, that's that's the elephant in the room, so to speak. So to get to your question of, plan b if donald trump were to simply say i'm not satisfied with any of this i'm just going to tear up nafta well again he can't do that he'd have to give us some warning usually six months to a year and then we would be raising questions about things that had got subsumed in nafta the biggest one of those bill is the auto pact for years the auto pact governed how canada and the united states traded automobile parts and automobiles back and forth when NAFTA was originally signed, we brought that into that agreement. If you're tearing it up, we need that to reappear. So, you know, even tearing it up doesn't mean that suddenly we're without something. We're going to have to sort out then what the new world order is. That's what plan B or C or D is. And I'm sure we've studied some lawyers who say, well, now, if they do that, this is what would suddenly default back into action. But I, I still believe at the end of the day we'll get a deal, and it will be a deal that we'll all enjoy, as, as Mike Pence, the vice president, has said. It'll be win-win-win for all three parties.
1: Listen, the the threat about walking away from the table, frankly, Marvin, doesn't really concern me a great deal because I, I can remember even in the negotiations for this first NAFTA deal, the one that's in place right now, Canada walked away from the bargaining table at one point, and there was a you know bruhaha, but I mean they went back and everything got settled. But the more important thing here, everybody's talking about what Trump might do. It's what Canada and Mexico might do in response to some of the U.S. demands and some of the things on the table. And you just touched on, I think, the most contentious. It's not the auto pact. It's not going to be whether Verizon's going to be allowed up here. It's the it's the rules of the game. It, and that's the dispute resolution. I mean, if you can't decide on the rules of the game, you're not going to get a deal.
0: Well, that's absolutely correct. And this is this seems to be what bothers Donald Trump now, mind you, what seems to bother Donald Trump varies day by day and week by week, but it seems to be this this bothers him because he says, why is a body, an external body, deciding things for the United States? It should be an American body deciding things for the United States. Donald, that's not the way it works in international trade deals. You can't have one country's dispute resolution mechanism work for everybody. We can't trust American judges to decide what's best for Canada and Mexico. No more than American uh, Amer- Americans can rely on Canadian courts. That's why we have these special dispute resolution. I think why he doesn't like it, especially in the case of softwood lumber, on four separate occasions we have used this a dispute resolution mechanism, and Canada has won all four of those. America has never won. Oh yes, they've opposed tariffs and they've done various things, but the courts have ordered them to reverse that and refund the money. Uh, I think the same thing would happen, by the way, in this fifth round of of softwood lumber dispute that's going on. Um, but Donald says this isn't fair. This isn't right. Of course it's fair. Of course it's right. That's what international trade is all about. I, I'm just not sure Donald Trump can seem to figure that out in his world. Trade only works if he benefits and everybody else loses. That's not the way it works on the
1: international stage. Who's whispering in his ear right now, Marvin? I mean, I understand that this is bombast and rhetoric when he goes to that rally, for instance, the one in, in Phoenix that you referenced. And he's saying this is a bad deal. This is a t- you know, we're getting screwed around. Because the facts actually belie. It's not a bad deal for the United States. I mean, there's some give and take in there. But by and large, they're doing pretty well out of NAFTA and have done pretty well out of NAFTA. But somebody is, is somebody whispering this in Trump's ear, or is this just his own lack of knowledge about what's actually involved in, in the deal?
0: Well, Bill, you raise a really good question there, and, and I, I must say I don't know. Um, in the time that Donald Trump has been president, he has worked through a series of advisors who've come and gone. There's a wonderful photo of his most inner core. There was Steve Bannon. He's gone. There was Reince Priebus. He's gone, Sean Stepper, Spicer, he's gone. They, they, all the people who seem to be his confidants, whispering in his ear, are gone. Now, his family hasn't gone, but I'm hard-pressed to believe that uh, uh, Donald Jr. or Eric or, or um, Ivanka are whispering the sweet nothings in his ear. I, I actually feel the man is ad-libbing this as he goes Again, it, to me, it's like watching a person on a concert tour singing the favorite songs. He loves the adulation of a crowd. Even yesterday when he landed in um, Texas to survey the damage of Hurricane Harvey, usually what a what a pri- president does is uh, tour the distraught sites, give comfort to the workers, uh, laud some heroism of the day, and then say the government's going to stand behind you. The first words out of Donald Trump's mouth were, "Look at the crowd! What a wonderful turnout! Glad you're all here to see me." What? This isn't about you. This is about the hurricane. This isn't what a normal president—I hate to use that word "normal," but normal president has ever done. I actually feel he's ad-libbing this as he goes. As a result, there is the the president who you see on the concert tour stage, and then there's the president who has to sign legislation. And I think at that point, he takes uh, much more counsel. From the bureaucracy inside. So, if he's got a trade secretary who will say to him, This is a good deal, if Lighthouser will walk up to him and say, Sir, this is a good deal, this is the best I can get, and there's a lot of, and he'll sell him on various points, I got this and this and this and this and this, then I think Donald Trump will say, well, Look, we did win. And that's also why, as we negotiate this, we have to be conscious that all parties have to have a win here somewhere. Mexico is going to have to win on something, Canada is going to have to win on something, the United States has to win on something, otherwise you don't get any kind of a deal at all. All
1: right. Are the timelines realistic here? I mean, they want to get this thing done in about six months. That seems... uh, I I don't know. I mean, given the the, the scenario that we've just talked about here, and given the fact that there's there's still a wide area of disagreement here, I I can't see how they're going to get something done. Mm
0: -hmm. The original NAFTA took over two and a half years to negotiate, Uh, Most recently, we had this thing called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That involved 12 countries. It was five years in the making. This is now six months. Now, this six-month timeline is consistent with Canada's and Mexico's wishes, because in Canada and Mexico's terms, they are, quote, modernizing NAFTA. So NAFTA 2.0 is a modernization of an agreement signed 23 years ago. The Americans say they want to renegotiate, in other words, start from scratch. They keep using the term renegotiate, start from scratch. It would be impossible to start from scratch and get an agreement in six months unless their renegotiation is more of a modernization. And it's just too early in the process to know how close or how far apart the two sides are. We've just had the first three days. We're going to have the second three days of talks. Uh, and by the way, you and I won't see anything in Mexico City. In other words, there'll be a grip and grin where they will all shake hands, maybe wear a, a Mexican in a sombrero or something for the for the cameras, and then they'll go behind closed doors, break into probably 30, 40 subgroups, each talking about their area to see what commonalities they have. And that process I, it does have to go at least until December, and then at December, I think we'll get a good indication: are we coming together or moving farther apart? And if it truly is a modernization, yes, it can be done. By February, Mexico wants it done because they don't want to interfere with the presidential election next year. Uh, Trump actually wants it done because he doesn't want it to interfere with the midterm elections where all the uh, representatives in the House of Representatives and one third of the senators get reelected. So it's possible. But it's just too early to tell how far apart or how too close together all the parties are.
1: All right, let's take Trump at his word. God forbid. I just shuddered as I said that. But as, if that were to happen and he tears it up, or if, if somebody walks out and they say, okay, you know what, we're just not going to do this, can we live without NAFTA? I mean, because you know that there are conversations going on in Mexico yeah. City and in Ottawa right now. What if? And, and they're trying to develop that Plan B.
0: Yeah, so... to to an earlier point you made, have we benefited from NAFTA? Yes. All three parties have benefited from NAFTA. In the 23 years of NAFTA, trade between the three nations has gone up 400%. that's, That's an amazing figure. It far beats the rate of inflation. So we have become more dependent on each other, and and my fear is, it's a bit like de amalgamation. Is how do you unscramble the egg? Uh, it's all well and good. Donald can say this dramatic thing: "I'm going to rip it up." But we've created an economy that's very dependent on each of the partners uh, uh, in Mexico and in Canada and in the United States. We rely on each other so heavily. I'm not sure it's just that easy. Now, if he had a he gave us a year's notice and said, "Okay, as of January 1st, 2019, this is coming to an end." then we would scramble to try to to replace those things. Now, remember, we've already signed a free trade deal with the European Union. I suspect that uh, Canada and Mexico would quickly say, well, then, can we do something without the United States? Uh, and, and we'd also turn to people like Japan and try to fill the void that way. But it would cause turmoil. There's no doubt about it. And simply the, the cloud on the economic horizon. So expect the stock market to uh, expect some of those other things that, to be negative for a while as we sorted out what the new world order is. It is in everyone's interest to have this deal. It is not in anyone's interest.
1: So therein lies the problem, though. Does does Donald Trump's administration, maybe not Trump himself, but does Trump's administration get the the severity of what he's suggesting here and, and the implications of what could happen?
0: Yeah, and again, I, I think the answer is yes. I think that bureaucracy understands this. The people underneath... I think even the Treasury secretaries and others uh, understand this. Uh, The question really now is how much do they have to take orders from Donald Trump? He seems to be losing power, Bill, right, left, and center as he loses these advisors. Uh, While I was in the United States, there's a story circulating that Rex Tillerson, his secretary of state, is days away from resigning because he can't deal with a boss who is so mercurial, who changes policy whims on the drop of a hat. If this is starting to happen elsewhere, then he may lose the ability to govern at all, and thus the bureaucracy will take over, and the bureaucracy does understand how important this is and By the way, remember what Canada did before these negotiations began. We spoke to the governors, we spoke to the mayors, we spoke to the House of Representatives, we spoke to the senators, and almost in unison, they agreed that this deal with Canada is is much more important than anything they else they have on their table so you know, if we if we can't sell it to Donald, but sell it to everybody else, we may still be
1: all right at the end of the day. Yeah, you got to wonder who's going to do the bidding for them right now. And because this is where I find this uh, some confusion, because when when Bill Morneau and Christia Freeland and others have gone down there uh, to talk to to governors and even to local authorities in in some of the states that do an awful lot of trade with Canada, uh, there, there's a lot of support. I mean, yeah, you know, we have got to get this thing done. This is mutually beneficial. We're happy. And then you hear this, this rhetoric coming out of the White House right now, and it's, it just seems to be so incongruous to what actually most people are thinking. Yet, when you see the people at the Trump rallies eating it all up, you got to wonder, well, where's the truth in this, and who's believing what?
0: Yeah, I mean, in fairness to the people at the Trump rallies, and, and even here in Canada, NAFTA is such a large and complicated document... I think there's very few people that understand it. I don't even claim to understand all of it. it. It is a massive document, and therefore it's easy to sell that high level rip it up type of rhetoric as you go. I, I'm reminded of Governor Scott Walker out of Wisconsin. He's a Republican governor um, who had been very supportive as Canadians came down to visit, but he was at a Republican event and was asked about NAFTA, and he says, "Well, I, I support Donald Trump on this. I think it's time for us to to revisit NAFTA and and fix the flaws, fundamental flaws in the agreement." So the reporter then said to him, okay, well, can you name me a couple of the flaws? And Scott Walker's answer was, well, no, but I'm sure there are some in there. And that's the problem they've got. They, they seem to feel there are things that need to be fixed. But even the governor himself had no idea what it was that needed to be fixed. He actually thought the agreement was working pretty well. So, you know, again, there's a dance here, Bill, and, and we're just in that very initial part of the cotillion watching the, the couples pair off and begin the dance. I think there's still a lot of hope for this as we go, and and Donald Trump, he will do his thing, and he'll have his sh- sideshow as he goes, but I'm going to ignore it as much as possible and listen for the substance that comes out of Mexico this weekend and in future. I think they're going to Vancouver
1: in a few more weeks after that. Yep. Marvin Ryder at the DeGruyne School of Business. Thanks as always, Marvin. Good having you on the show again today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the politicians get back to work next week after their uh, summer off doing the barbecue circuit, of course. And uh, Well, the polling has started once again. Actually, it's been going on through the last uh, number of months uh, since the Conservatives chose a new leader, that being Andrew Scheer, of course. And traditionally, there's usually a bump in the popularity of the party and that individual when they become leader. Happened with uh, Justin Trudeau, happened with Tom Mulcair and the NDP, uh, happened with Stephen Harper and the Conservatives when he took over, but uh, not so much with Andrew Scheer. Uh, Almost an insignificant uh, increase in popularity right now. What's going on and does that necessarily translate into future political success or not? Joining us to talk about this is Christo Avelis, Queens University labor and political history professor and uh, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning Christo, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Good, you're surprised by these numbers uh, because I'm looking at the the historical list here and uh... I mean Bob Stanfield way back when when he became leader of the conservative party had about a ten percent increase in popularity Joe Clark was at ten percent uh, Justin Trudeau, we mentioned was about seven point eight Tom Mulcair, about six and a half. Uh, Andrew shear, not very much at all uh, the the lowest one in about fourteen years right now. What's going on here?
3: Well, you know, I think it's a few factors. I think one, you know, shear isn't um you know, he isn't very exciting. you know that's not to take anything away from what he can offer, but you know, he was kind of the the consolation choice for a lot of conservatives in the leadership race. Um, if you noticed he, You know, he did well on many of the ballots, but he really, you know, won the race on the down ballot, you know, with people third and fourth and fifth choice. And that's where he really, you know, won the leadership. And I think he was chosen to be a a Stephen Harper-like figure, which is to say somebody who's clearly a conservative, but somebody who will, you know, run the party in a kind of very disciplined fashion. And I think that, you know, a lot of Canadians, a lot of those swing voters that conservatives would need You know they're polling at about thirty. They need to get to about forty. That's ten percent of people. I don't know if they're ready to go back to a Harper uh, position. And another factor is, I would say, you know, relates to a lot of those other leaders when they came in. There was there was unpopularity with existing governments. Uh, Stephen Harper was unpopular with a lot of Canadians both when Trudeau and Mulcair became leader. And even you mentioned Clark, and uh, you mentioned Clark and. Well, Bob Trudeau. Stanfield,
1: yeah, and number yeah, yeah
3: Clark, Clark and Stanfield. Sorry, both at uh, both times in particular, Trudeau was not you know extremely popular, um, and I think that's kind of important to note as well. You know, for instance, you know Clark came in uh, in the late seventies, and Trudeau was not popular at the time, and he was able to defeat him, even though he would lose again shortly after.
1: What about the uh, the time of year? I mean, Sheer actually only got to sit in the House as that party leader, as opposition leader, as it turned out really just for a couple of weeks, is that enough time to actually get your brand out there and tell people who you are and what you are?
3: No, it's quite tricky. It's quite tricky to do that, and you know, there hasn't been any big major, you know, political issues that have come up uh, for him to oppose yet. You know, once the House gets in session, you're right, there could be uh, you know, more opportunity for him to really make a case. I mean, one of the things that, and again, ultimately the election didn't work out for him, but one of the things that, you know, Tom Alcaire got a bump, but he got sustained support because he was really effective at delivering good soundbite questions to the prime minister. So every day, you you know, you'd put on CBC Newsworld or the CTV you know Newsworld or what have you, and, and you'd see, like, the questions from Tom Mulcair to to Stephen Harper. And if you were of the persuasion that, you know, the Harper government is not good or it needs to be kept accountable, then, like, Tom Mulcair instantly became, you know, leadership quality to you as a, as a potential voter. Sheer hasn't had that opportunity. You know, he might get that opportunity and not succeed, but I agree when you say that. It's, he, he was elected leader at, a, at an odd time in that sense.
1: Yeah, and obviously summertime. But, I mean, there have been other leaders that were elected during summertime, too, and they didn't seem to uh, – Shears, by, by the way, we mentioned everybody else's numbers but Shears. He's at 1.3%. That's all the, the bump that conservatives got when he came in here. Uh, and that's why people are kind of scratching their heads. But I'm wondering if there's another factor here, though, too. If we look at the history here, uh, Stephen Harper left some time ago. Interim leader was Rona Ambrose. Uh, I got the sense, uh, as this leadership campaign dragged on and on and on, that an awful lot of conservatives, uh, Christo, wanted her to be the leader. And uh, so it, so in other words, it's, it's kind of like a lunch bag letdown. I, don't I guess we got Andrew Scheer, but we wished and- Rona had stayed on. That seems to be the attitude that, uh, that a lot of voters had.
3: You know that's actually, I hadn't thought about that point. But you know, when you say it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Rona, Rona Ambrose was reasonably popular. Um, she was you know, effective as leader. There was no scandals kind of under her leadership or anything of the sort you know, in that sense, she was a perfect interim leader, but she was also good at proposing legislation. I think she made some inroads in trying to make the Conservative Party, you know, kind of continue that Stephen Harper tradition of of m- keeping the party, you know, accessible to, to non-white Canadians, for instance. And, you know, one of the general things is, uh, is that when you become interim leader, it's expected you won't run for, for the actual leader. And that could have been one of the reasons why she, you know, uh, stepped aside from formal politics and and whatnot, But you're right, it could have been that she gave them a bump, uh, and then that part of uh, the sheer bump was absorbed by Rona Ambrose's uh, good performance as interim leader.
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm wondering if the bump was really when she took over as interim leader. In other words, when Harper left, uh, those hardcore, you know, to the right of center uh, supporters were going to say, well, where's the party going right now? Uh, I thought she did a, a, a very good job, actually, of, of moving the party a little bit more to the middle, but at the same time, not alienating the people that uh, that shared some of the more right wing views. More than and and maybe that was the bump there. And maybe you know you got to ask yourself, well, how much more room is there for sheer to grow in a situation like that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the reasons they picked sheer. Sheer was going to be someone that 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 the, you know the average Canadian voter, the kind of person who could vote conservative again. They, they have a floor in the high 20s, low 30s. They're kind of there right now. They seem to that they won't go too much lower than that. But they need to get about 10% more of Canadians to get into that, you know, forming government or forming a majority government territory that Stephen Harper got in 2011. And someone like Sheer, they really feel that he could be the one to bring it. Again, he he has the support of the, the, the religious conservatives, Um you know, he didn't really get the support of the Libertarians, but that's a relatively small part of the party compared to, like, a lot of more traditional conservatives, and he appeals to all of them. So, you know, that's their hope. I mean, I think Rona Ambrose maybe delivered that in some ways uh, before he did. This isn't to say that he can't grow into the position. He's, he's quite young. He's, he's, I believe he's 38, 39, um, and that means that, you know, he can certainly grow into this position, but it, it, it does seem like he started
1: slowly. Well, yeah, and, and you're right. I think that leadership race is a big part of this as well. I mean, there's, I I, I got the sense an awful lot of the delegates, and of course they all voted. It, it wasn't as if they had to go and vote for each one of those uh, 14 or 15 uh, ballots that actually went through. But uh, there, there seemed to be some concern about Maxime Bernier actually becoming the leader of the party because of some of those libertarian views, and I don't think they were ready to embrace that. But uh, Shearer hasn't really defined himself yet. And the, the, the controversy that we've seen, such as it is over the last couple of months, I think, Christo, is people are saying, okay, who is this guy? Is he a centrist? Because that's what he sort of sounded like during the campaign, except now we're starting to hear that, you no, know, he actually shares a lot more of the views of Stephen Harper. So I guess he's he has to define himself before people can decide whether or not they're going to like him.
3: Yeah, I would have, I mean, my view is always that he's been kind of in the Stephen, Har- Stephen Harper vein, which is to say that, you know, he's he is a conservative, um, but what he will probably uh, try to do, and maybe he'll be less successful than Stephen Harper is, is tried to neutralize to a certain degree the, the concrete effects of that social conservatism, which is to say that you know that that's something the party believes, but you won't see any kind of you know inroads towards you know say restricting abortion rights or things of that sort. I mean, you have seen him to a certain degree line up on some kind of hot button issues. He's really made free speech at universities uh, a big claim on his. You know, I think he's buying into a certain narrative that you know, the, the, the radical left, quote-unquote, is destroying free speech at the universities, which is a kind of maybe a nod to the alt-right, in a sense. But I think that, in general, he's looking to run a Stephen Harper-type campaign. The problem with that is, again, it's not very exciting. It's not exciting to the base, necessarily. And I don't think a lot of Canadians are saying, well, this is something new and fresh. You know, Stephen Harper's only been gone a couple of years now. Whereas you know, Bernier might have been very divisive, but there's a chance that a lot of uh, liberal voters might say, oh, this is something new. This is something different. I'm at least intrigued here. You know, I think that's that's the limitation of picking sheer.
1: With uh, Christo Avelis uh, from Queens University, uh, there is another leadership race going on right now. Of course, the, the federal NDP will choose a leader in just a little while. Uh, we're told uh, this week, uh, Christo, that their uh, membership has actually tripled during this leadership race, up to 124,000. Uh, do we read that into a wave of uh, orange wave of success like we saw under Jack Layton?
3: I mean, it's tricky. I mean, the numbers are uh, they're basically the same as was voting in the twenty twelve leadership race. They're a little bit, a couple thousand lower. It's you know statistically insignificant, which I think is 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 negative in a sense because you know you look your membership smaller than five years ago. But it's positive in the sense that. You know, this is now a third-party leadership vote rather than a vote to elect the next leader of the opposition as it was in 2012. Um, so in that sense, there's a lot of excitement relative to it being, you know, uh, you know you're just electing uh, um, some, another opposition leader. Um, you know, I don't know if it's a, another orange wave. There have been some encouraging signs. In some provinces, membership is down in Quebec. That might be concerning. But membership is up quite significantly Ontario- in Ontario, which is maybe beneficial for the party both uh, in 2019, but also potentially for the Ontario NDP because the NDP, unlike some of the the, the Liberals and Conservatives, um, every, if you're an NDP member everywhere in Canada, you're a member both federally and provincially. So that means that the ONDP has also gained a si- significant amount of members. So uh, yeah, the, the the details are hard to parse out right now, but there's some there's some positives there.
1: Interesting about the numbers, though, as you say, province by province. Uh, I just referenced uh, the orange wave under Jack Layton. Uh, Now, mind you, there were other factors involved in that, too. Michael Ignatieff uh, just never did resonate with Canadian voters, and they were looking for an alternative. Uh, The Parti Québécois, of course, was fading badly in Quebec during that particular time, and Layton certainly sees that. But a lot of that power that actually uh, foisted them into uh, the opposition role, Christo, was uh, because of the success in Quebec. But now we're told that memberships in, in Quebec are down for the NDP. So that you got to wonder about whether or not they can hold on to that power base.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's the concern. I mean, right now I think what what this has shown is that there's, there's not a lot of members in Quebec regardless relative to the population of Quebec and relative to the amount of seats the party even has now, let alone you know, in 2011 where they won you know dozens and dozens and dozens of seats. Um but I, I think with Quebec, it, the party can still do well, uh, but it's going to be harder. It's going to be harder now. The Liberals have a much better ground game in Quebec, just historically, given the, the party's strength there, uh, its strength with French Canadians in particular. That's going to be a challenge. But as we've seen, you know, memberships are important, don't get me wrong, but, you know, a campaign is extremely important, uh, especially, seemingly especially in Quebec, where the province... You know, almost swings uh, in one way to to, to achieve a certain result, and that could be to stop the conservatives. Um, We don't know how popular or unpopular Trudeau will be in 2019. There's still quite a ways the way to go, but yeah, that that is a concern. It limits your ground game.
1: Quebec's a bit of an anomaly anyway, though, isn't it, from a political standpoint, Christo? Because they, the, the lines about what party is what and what they stand for are very different than they are in, in other parts of the country. I mean, you know, the quote-unquote liberal party, uh, at least the provincial liberal party in Quebec, is very much uh, uh, a right-of-center party. Uh, you know, they try to stay in the center a little bit, but uh, I mean, how could that's how a guy like Jean Charest could go from there and become a, a conservative on a federal level. So you're not quite sure what the lines are there as, as to who's supporting whom?
3: Yeah, no, uh, provincially especially, the, 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 there's a left-right and a federalist uh, separatist uh, spectrum, if you will. So the liberals would be center-right, uh, I would classify them as center-right, you know, on the left-right spectrum uh, provincially, and then they would be, you know, what you would call uh, obviously federalists, where you have, you have the Parti Québécois, at least, maybe maybe not when Pierre Carapelo was leading them, but maybe again now would be a center-left party, and then, you know, more separatist. And then you have left parties like Quebec Solidaire, which is also separatist, but, but not as a core doctrine necessarily. So, I mean, how that translates federally is always tricky, right? You know, you have Tom Mulcair, for instance, in the most recent Quebec election, he said, I voted for the Quebec Liberals. And he voted for the Quebec Liberals, he said, because, well, it's the only somewhat centrist, you know, federalist party to vote for. And, you know, that was kind of controversial in some NDP circles. They felt, you know, separatism and federalism aside, you vote on all the issues, and if you vote on all the issues, an NDP should vote for Quebec Solidaire as the left party of the province. So how that translates to the, to the federal politics is going to be really interesting.
1: Well, sure. It's also, we got about a minute left here, the, the way in which they choose leaders is different now, where it's, as you say, it's done electronically. It's done by, by those who are members. We don't elect delegates uh, in this country anymore, at least it seems as if none of the parties are going to do that anymore, and send them off to Ottawa or Toronto or wherever the convention is going to be. Uh, you get to vote, uh, which means if you sell a membership, you got a shot at it. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to vote in the federal election, does it?
3: No, not necessarily. I mean... Deal, the way it used to work, yeah, you, you know, riding associations would elect delegates, and those delegates would go to the convention. And for the first round, at least, they would vote as they were instructed by their by their riding. And after that, they were usually free to decide. And that made it very tricky. This is why in 1968, they didn't know if Trudeau was going to win, even though most people who identified as liberals wanted him to, because the 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 the, the demographics of the average liberal voter and the average liberal delegate to the convention were not an overlap. Whereas you know, it's not perfect, but in a one-member, one-member, member, uh, one one-member, one-vote system, like you know, like we see for most Canadian parties now, you know, you can do a kind of analysis and say, well, if this is the average NDP person, we can at least expect something representative at the convention.
1: Interesting dynamic, and uh, things are going to start ramping up, obviously, uh, as we get into September. Crystal, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. Take care. That's uh, Cristo Avelis, of course, at Queen's University.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.